Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 24. Now, I get pretty excited about every guest I have on the show, but I was absolutely beside myself about getting the chance to sit down with today's guest and drill him with questions about the things he's achieved. Trent Grimsey is a man you may not have heard of, but in my very humble opinion, he should just about be a household name. The English Channel is often described as the Mount Everest of swimming but that probably doesn't do it justice. Really, Mount Everest should be described as the English Channel of climbing. At last count, more than three times more people had climbed to the summit of Everest than had managed to swim the 34 kilometres of icy, choppy water that separate England and France. And of the people who attempt to swim across the channel, only about 10% make it. Our guest in today's episode not only made it across, but is the fastest person to ever do so. During our chat, you'll hear Trent Grimsey tell us in detail about his path to marathon swimming immortality, his development as a young swimmer, his incredible training regime, the terrible misfortune that prevented him from ever becoming an Olympian, the tough times that only made him more determined. He tells us about the time in his life where, as the number one marathon swimmer on the planet, he dominated the world circuit. You'll hear the fascinating story about the mind games played by the former channel record holder, how he tried to get in Trent's head, get him to question himself, whether he was worthy to even make the attempt. And, of course, you'll learn about Trent's tenacity and the way he used those mind games to his own advantage. He explains why in 2012, at the age of 24, at the very peak of his powers, he chose to hang up his goggles and retire from the sport. These days, he's using his experience to help people from all walks of life realize their dream of conquering the toughest swim on earth. I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with the incredibly humble Trent Grimsey. Trent Grimsey, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's absolutely my pleasure. Trent, I have a lot of great guests on this show, and I look forward to interviewing each and every one of them, but I can't remember being so excited about talking to a guest as I am about talking to you today. You have achieved so much, and the way that you've gone about those achievements is simply extraordinary. Today in this episode, we're going to talk about your life your swimming career and your coaching career, but we're not going to take a timeline approach because I want to start talking about the English Channel. The fact that you're the world record holder, I want to know all about that swim, your preparation and how it played out on the day. And most of all, I want to know why. Why on earth in Australia, a country that loves its swimmers, adores them in fact, that you, the fastest man to ever have crossed the English Channel, are far from a household name. Yeah, well, David, I guess it's just one of those things uh, with marathon swimming. It's not really, um, I guess, what you'd call a a mainstream sport. You're swimming swimming for a long time, hours hours on end, and um, 
yeah, look, I guess it's just, it does get boring for a spectator. It's not really a spectator sport, which I guess does make it hard for sponsorship and, and whatnot. But yeah, look, it's, I guess it just comes down to not really being spectator friendly. Yeah, you're right. I guess it's not a spectator sport, but everyone knows about the English Channel. It's the Mount Everest of swimming. And in fact, you, when we were chatting the other day, gave me a stat about the number of people who have climbed to the summit of Everest compared to the number of people who've swum across the channel. What, what are those numbers? Yeah, that's right. So um, I did a talk. It was, um, when was, I think, the end of 2014. So at that time, I did the talk. Three times the amount of people had swum at Mount Everest that had uh, successfully swam the English Channel. That's incredible. So what are approximately the number of people who have successfully swum across the channel? It's, well, now it would be about 1,600, I imagine, about 1,600. So at the end of 2014, I think it was 1,480. Yeah. But of that 1,600, about 160 of them are Australians. Really? Yeah. So are we the most contributing nation to that swim? Look, I think we'd probably be fourth on the list. Yeah. Obviously, the English are are right up there. They they breaststroke their way across, do they? Yeah. Well, uh, quite a few people have done breaststroke across the channel, but um, also Ireland, and there are quite a few Americans that have also swum. Yeah, of course, of course. All right, so when you broke that record, where were you in your swimming career? At, at what point were you? I I think from memory, you were the number one ranked swimmer, number one ranked ocean swimmer in the world at the time. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Look, I just it was 2012 that I swam my English channel, and look, I just had a phenomenal year, 2012, like it. I look back on it now and I couldn't have possibly hoped for a better year, 2012. I I competed on the Grand Prix circuit. I won majority of those races on the Grand Prix circuit, which did rank me number one marathon swim in the world and um, looked to top it off with that English Channel Crossing. Yeah, it was just magical year, 2012, really was. So when you say you're on the on the circuit, the Grand Prix circuit, the marathon swimming circuit, what is a marathon swim? What distances are we talking? Well, the races on the Grand Prix circuit, it's anything 15 kilometres or higher. So um, that's what a marathon swimmer's class is, anything 15 kilometres or higher, essentially. Okay, 15 kilometres. So so imagine 15 kilometres. How many laps of an Olympic pool is that? Oh, it's how many laps? Good question. What, 20 laps is one kilometre. So, uh, so we've just paused the podcast there so Trent and I could work our feeble minds through the maths of that. So the the shortest swim that can be considered a marathon is 300 laps of an Olympic pool. So just to put that in perspective, so 15 Ks is, is the shortest. What, what are some of, what's the, the, the normal type of swim on that Grand Prix circuit? I guess the, the average distance swim on the Grand Prix circuit is about 30 kilometers. Most of them are about 30. There's a couple 36. Some of the ones in Argentina are a lot longer. They're in their 50s, and there was even an 88-kilometer race that I was actually signed up to do, but we were actually all on the start line, all the competitors, and then there was this big storm forecasted, so um, everyone had their, obviously, their grease on, their fast skins on, cap goggles on. We were just waiting for the starter to, to send us off, and um, yeah, race director said, sorry, guys, we've got to call it off. Oh, what a shame. So mm. you're just standing there staring down the barrel of an 88-kilometer swim, you know, so you were prepared to do it, quite mm. obviously. And were you standing there thinking, well, I'm the number one guy in the world at the moment. I'm probably going to win this thing. Well, I was kind of in two minds. Like I'd actually miss my sister's wedding because I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to take part in the, the world's longest marathon swim. But in the same same time, I'd also done a 57-kilometer race the week before. So oh. I was kind of, um, I was a little bit sore. And But I guess everyone was in the same boat. But look, I was pretty excited about being able to say I've, I've kind of swam the world's longest marathon 
So when it was called off, yeah, look, I was a little bit disappointed, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, I can get some good recovery in before my next marathon. And has your sister forgiven you yet? Oh, yeah, I think she has. <laughs> Took a little bit of time. <laughs> I bet it did. All right, so back to the English Channel. So we've just put in context where you were in your swimming career. You were on the circuit. You were winning most of the stuff that you were going in. You were swimming some really long distances. So the English Channel is 34 kilometers as the crow flies. We know that most of the time swimmers end up swimming about 40 kilometers so they can follow the tide. So that's actually not that long a swim as far as what you are used to doing. I mean, it's obviously a, a really long swim, but but you, you'd been doing a lot of long swims. So when you turned up to do the English Channel in September of 2012, was your sole purpose to go there and break the record? Yeah, that's right. I did go there in, uh, in September 2012 purely to break the record. I guess I had the, it was in 2009, just after World Champs, the Open Water Swimming World Championships, I, I placed second in the 25-kilometer event. So I was ranked second in the world and it was kind of my first distance I'd ever raced over 10 kilometers. So I just didn't expect to get second. So I was, I was pretty over the moon and, and blown away with that. Then they were in Italy, those World Championships, and I was on the plane coming home. I was thinking, where do I go from here? Like, what's next? It's just World Championships next year then. Then I guess Olympics in 2012. And um, when I got home, I just had this thought on the plane, well, what about the English Channel? That's kind of the pinnacle of all marathon swimmers. Not only do they want to swim the English Channel, they want to hold the world record for the English Channel. So I kind of made my mind up on the plane coming home from Italy in 2009 that I was going to break the world record for the English Channel. Yeah, I didn't really know too much about the English Channel back then in 2009. All I knew is that I wanted the record. So when I got home, I remember going on my computer, Googling the English Channel and had my notepad just wrote down as many notes as I could, what time of year you could swim, the distance, uh, water temperature, who had the record, what pilot he had. Yeah, because I knew if I, if I wanted to break the guy's record, Peter Stoivchek, if I wanted to break his record, I'd need to um, swim at the same time of year he did. I think he swam in September, so I booked for September. He used Michael Room as his pilot, so I booked Michael Room as my pilot. I wanted to have the same, um, I guess I wanted to follow his path he took. Yeah, there's a lot of questions that I've got after what you've just said then, but I know you're too polite a person to bring up something about the former record holder. Peter Stoichek is a guy from Bulgaria. He's, he's quite an interesting guy. He was a member of parliament in Bulgaria for a while. He now holds a fairly senior position in FINA, which is the world governing body for swimming. And when you were the number one swimmer in the world, killing it on the Grand Prix circuit, came across to the English Channel to break his world record, he had something to say about that, didn't he? Yeah, it's, um, it is quite funny looking back on it now. There was a, a Grand Prix race in Macedonia. So obviously being from Australia, it is quite hard to get the cold. Well, being from Brisbane, it's quite hard to get the cold water. So I guess acclimatize your body. To swim in cold water, you need to acclimatize your body. You can't just go over there and, and expect to be able to swim in 16-degree water for potentially eight hours. So I ended up leaving Australia two months before I actually swam the English Channel. And I did a different marathon every weekend for the eight week, weeks leading up to when I had my English Channel booked. And, and most of those marathons were in cold water. So I went over to Canada, the States, just to kind of get my body get my body used to swimming in cold water for long periods of time. And it was actually the marathon I did three weeks. So it was three weeks out from the Channel. It was in Macedonia. It was a 34-kilometer race. And um, Peter Stoivchek was there. He was, he was fresh off the Olympics. So the Olympics had just been, um, I think it was a month earlier. And Peter ended up beating me in that race. He was first. I came in second. I think it was about maybe 10 seconds he beat me by. And, over what um, distance? Over 34 kilometers. 
And um, it was at the end of that race, Peter, uh, he said to me at the end, he said, Trent, he said, why are you swimming the English Channel? He said, do you honestly believe you can beat my time? Then he said, you have no chance. And um, look, I knew Peter. I'd kind of been racing him for the three years leading up to that. So I knew something like that would be coming. Peter liked to play mind games with a lot of his competitors. So I knew something like that would, it was bound to happen. And looking back on it, it kind of lit a fire inside of me. I could just laugh it off at the time. But um, I think, honestly, had Peter not said that to me, I probably don't think I would have broken his record. That was my next question. How, across the English Channel, how many times did you think about Peter and what he'd said to you? That's all I thought about the whole time, <laughs> the whole 34 kilometres. That's all I thought about and how bad I wanted to beat his time. That's fantastic. So he's playing mind games. He's obviously very A-type personality, very competitive, and it's actually come back and bitten him on his own backside. Well, essentially, essentially. So that was three weeks before I ended up swimming the English Channel. So every night in that three weeks, the last thing I thought about before I went to bed was how bad I wanted to beat Peter's record. First thing I thought about in the morning is how bad I wanted to beat Peter's record. I dreamt about it at night. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's look, I use that as motivation. Swimming the English Channel. When you swim the channel, everyone goes through a rough patch. It's not a matter of if you do or not. It's a matter of when you do and how fast you can pull yourself out of it. And when I went through my rough patch, my bit of a hole was from the fifth to the sixth hour. Yeah, definitely thinking about Peter was what helped me. It's what helped my crew be able to pull me out of that hole. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast. Now, we're going to talk about your crew and the team that was around you that day. We're going to talk about the time that you did and how much you beat Peter by. But first of all, just for those who don't know much about the Channel Swim at all, firstly, let's point about the very obvious point. Every, every other swim that you've talked about so far is a race where you're standing on the start line and there's a whole bunch of other people there and you're, you're going to win or you're going to not. When you swing the English Channel, you're all alone. It's not a race. It's just it's essentially a time trial, I guess. So that's one thing that our listeners should understand. The other thing is the water temperature. So you chose to swim in September, and the English Channel season lasts from July to September, and you've you got a choice. The earlier you swim, the better the air temperature will be, but the water temperature will be colder. Or is it the other way around? Yeah, you're on the right track. So the earlier you swim in the season, I guess the colder the water temperature, but the longer days. Right. Um, so the later you swim in the season, the, the warmer the water temperature, but the shorter the days. So you'll right. be swimming in the, in the dark a lot lot longer, right. essentially. So I chose September because I knew I knew I wanted a fast time. And I, like even swimming in a pool, if you swim in a 16-degree pool, yeah. you do a fast 100, your time's going to be a couple of seconds slower than if you swim in a past 118 degree pool. Yeah. So I knew every second was going to count. That's yeah. why I wanted I wanted September when it was going to be as warm as possible. When our old mate Peter had done it. Yeah, that's correct. Now, so we're, we're looking at when you swim the channel, it could be anything from 14 degrees to if you get really lucky, it might be 17 or 18 degrees. Yeah. To put that in perspective, if you go down to your local pool, people start complaining at 23 degrees. If the pool's at 23 degrees, most of the people I know will go up to the front counter and start wanting to know why. So that's a cold place. And there are very few places even in Australia that you can go and train in that kind of temperature, aren't there? Oh, there are. There are. That's what what makes it pretty challenging for people, people, uh, especially in Brisbane, that want to swim the English Channel. It's... um, but I don't know. I think it kind of it makes us a little bit more smarter at the same time. So um, definitely makes you think outside the box. You've got to think outside the box of ways you can expose yourself to that cold water. So um, obviously there's 
there are a couple of pools that aren't heated, so so I guess being able to swim in them definitely helps. There's a couple of lakes, uh, lakes around that get quite cool, and um, and also ice bath and plunge pools. They they definitely help. It's an incredible attempt. It's an incredible challenge to take on. And we're going to talk later about everyday swimmers, you know, just guys and girls who have jobs and to whom swimming is a hobby who are taking it on and they're taking it on more and more and you're helping them with that. But let's stay with you and you'll swim for a while because as you know, it it fascinates me no end. Now, you swam across the English Channel. I'll explain it a different way. If a good swimmer, someone who swims with a squad, is a fit person, swimming is their hobby, they train really hard for 8, 10, 12, 18 months to swim across the English Channel, they might go over there condition dependent and expect any, to swim anywhere between 10 or 12 or 14 hours. Is, that sounds about right? Yeah, I think uh, 12 to 14 hours is probably the, the normal swim. Yeah. Right. So you swam across the English Channel in 6 hours and 55 minutes. Yeah, that's correct. That's amazing. And you beat Peter, our old mate Peter, you beat his record by two minutes. Two minutes and 50 seconds. <laughs> so how, I mean, along that distance, were there times where you didn't think you were on track to beat his record? Because across nearly seven hours, two hours, two minutes is not a lot of time. Were you always ahead of the curve or? Well, look, the, the morning I woke up, the morning I swam the channel, I actually woke up and I... It was just one of those mornings I knew I was going to break the record that morning. Oh, as soon as I opened my eyes, I thought, wow, I feel sensational. I'd had mornings like that in the past, like, you know, you know, when you wake up and you just think, wow, today's going to be an awesome day. It was one of those days. So as soon as I woke up, I got out of bed, opened my blind, the sun was up. It was a sunny day. Like, it was just awesome. So um, I just had this feeling that morning that I was going to break the record. I was going to have a good swim. And look, I was, I was very fortunate. I had a great crew on my boat. I had Michael on piloting for me. He's probably one of the best pilots out there. I had a great crew on my boat. Had my swimming coach from in Australia. From in Australia, I had that actually a swimmer who was ranked second in the world to me in 2012. One of my friends, Damien Bloom, he was on my boat, also helping crew for me, get my feeds ready, cheering me, supporting me. So uh, a good crew on your boat definitely helps. It definitely um, their role is to take your mind off what you're actually doing, which is swimming for a six, seven, eight, nine, up to 14 hours. So when you're swimming that distance, you want to think about anything but swimming. And how do they take your mind off it when you've essentially got your head in the water? Well, look, with the English Channel, you swim next to the boat. My crew had a big whiteboard. It was, um, it was probably a, a metre by maybe 30 centimetres. So they were just writing notes down. So previous, like before I started my English Channel, I'd just have my notepad, I jotted down a few notes, I guess a few quotations, a few motivational lyrics to songs, you name it, just words which meant something to me. So I gave it to my coach and Damien and they were writing on the whiteboard. Every five minutes they'd rub out what they had and write up a new message, a new note. And even even my friends back home, what they were texting me or putting on my Facebook page or tweeting me, my coach and my um, my support crew would put that up on the whiteboard. And look, it definitely helped like getting a, a whiteboard message, oh, your mum's just tweeted you this, you know, so it was, um, yeah, it was pretty special. And in every hour, actually, across the English Channel, my crew would give me a bit of an update on how I was going against the record. Right. So it was the first hour. They actually, it was, it was quite odd the way they did it. They held up a sign saying, Trent, you need to stay relaxed. This information we're about to give you, you need to stay relaxed. I'm thinking, well, what are they talking about? It's a big storm coming. And, and so what are you doing? Are you, are you reading this whiteboard message 
between breaths. So yeah, so I breathe every second stroke to my yeah. right hand side. Yeah. So the boat was on my right hand side. Yeah. So every time I took a breath, I'd, I'd, I'd see the whiteboard. So I was only a couple of meters from it. And yeah, so the next message they wrote was your three minutes under the world record. Oh, awesome! And I just couldn't believe it. Like and when did, I read and did that, did you feel as though you were going that well? Well, I thought, wow, like I'm three minutes under the record and I'm just like, I didn't want to go too hard too early because swimming in cold water, you get fatigued a lot quicker than swimming in normal water. Yeah, all cold water swimmers, all marathon swimmers know you, you really got to pace yourself in cold water. I was swimming at a pace where I thought was maintainable. But yeah, when I saw that sign, I thought, wow, like I can definitely pick up my pace. I'm three minutes under. Imagine if I put my foot down a little bit more. I wonder what it'll be next hour. So um, I, I increased my pace a little bit. And after the second hour, they held up a sign saying, Trent, you're five minutes under the reward record. And I thought, wow, this is unreal. I still feel like I could pick up the pace a little bit more. So it was that after the third hour, they held up a sign saying, Trent, you're seven minutes under the record. And I was like, wow, this is just a dream come true. So I thought, wow, again, I still feel like I can pick up the pace. So I picked up the pace again and it was four hours in. They had up a sign saying, Trent, you're still seven minutes under the record. I thought, hang on, I've just picked up the pace. Why aren't I more under the yeah. world record pace than yeah. seven minutes? Yeah, because I'm hurting. And it probably started to play in my mind a little bit then. Yeah. And then um, I thought, you know what, just stay positive, Trent. Still seven minutes under. So uh, I kept swimming as hard as I could to the next hour. They held up a sign saying, Trent, you're still seven minutes under. And I think when I saw that sign... They were lying to you. No, nah, not so much lying to me, but I just haven't gained any more on it. So Peter, when he swims all his races, he finishes very, very strong. So I'd obviously gone out faster than he had. And yeah, look, I was starting to... I'd kind of just maintain the same pace rather than swimming any faster. Getcha, getcha. And that started to play in my mind. Five hours when I saw the sign saying, Trent, you're still seven minutes under. I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I've spent the last three hours swimming as fast as I can. I haven't well, I haven't lost any to it. I hadn't gained any. Yeah. So from that fifth to sixth hour, I definitely did it pretty tough. So my support crew were doing everything they could to try and pull me out of it. Holding up signs, riding down... Facebook messages from my friends and family back home. And, you know, it's, I think ultimately what did pull me out of it is just thinking about Peter Stoivchek in, in Macedonia and, and what he said to me. And, um, so thank you, Peter. Yeah. Well, well essentially. And, uh, look, that definitely helped pull me out of that hole. And that last hour, I did lose a lot in that hour to the record. And the, I was lucky enough to hang on to two minutes and 50 seconds in the end. So when you talk about going through a rough patch, you know, at that four or five hour mark, describe to us what you really mean by that. Most people will never perform at that intensity for that long. We have no idea what it would like to go through that kind of a rough patch. What's your body doing? Oh, look, body's just just screaming at you. Like I remember I was pretty close to pulling the pin actually, David. Really? Pretty, pretty close to pulling the pin. Tell you what, it's so long ago. It feels like it's so long ago now, four years ago. But so, um, yeah, my body's just screaming at me. I'd lost it mentally. I'd, I'd let it, my mind had slipped mentally and I'm pretty mentally strong. Like I'm pretty easily motivated, but I'd let it slip. And um, I was just getting really angry. I was just letting the small things get to me, which normally I wouldn't. So the small things like, I felt like the boat kept going faster than slower, faster than slower. So I was getting angry at that. I was getting angry because my my team on the boat were doing a fantastic job supporting me the whole way. And I remember getting angry at them because they weren't cheering loud enough. Just stupid things like that. And um, yeah, I remember thinking, Trent, what are you doing, mate? You you got to pull. Yeah, you got to pull yourself. Got to pull yourself out of it. But yeah, look, they were doing a great job with their messages on the whiteboard and. 
look, when, when you lose it mentally, you lose it physically as well. And I knew my stroke was, I knew my, I was going straight arms, so I was slapping when I was entering the water. So my stroke had kind of turned to shit essentially. So yeah, I knew if, if I wanted to get out of that hole, I'd need to try and think positive again, which in turn would kind of help my stroke and pull that together as well. And so when you felt yourself get out of that hole, how did you do it? How did you stop getting annoyed at the little things that your crew were doing? And then how did you transfer that into getting your rhythm back and your, your efficient stroke back? It's funny. Like my crew actually held up a whiteboard and they said, Trent, Peter Stoivchek's on the phone. <laughs> so, uh, so they held up a whiteboard and Peter Stoivchek had called my pilot. Uh, Mike Oram, who was on the boat, and oh, that was that, that was said about the six hour. So, um, I actually, when you swim the English Channel, you have a tracker. There's a tracker on each boat. It's like a GPS. So you send that out to all your friends and family, and they can sit in front of the computer screen at home and they can watch you get across the English Channel. And um, so, look, I sent that out. I put it on all my social media and, and whatnot. And um, look, Peter had obviously seen that, and he saw I was looking at my tracker and saw I was getting closer to France, probably looking at his his watch. And um, look, I. And when, when my crew held up that sign saying Peter was on the, on the phone to Mike, I knew he'd, he was on the phone for one reason, and that was because he was scared. Yeah. And that's what did it. That's fantastic. There's so much about just that Peter element that tells us about your character. A lesser character might have withered at the current record holder saying to you, what are you doing going to swim the English Channel? But for you, that drove you and spurred you on. And a lesser character when they learned that they were seven minutes under the pace early in their swim, might have thought, okay, I'm just going to cruise here. But, but you actually picked up the pace. So there's a, there's a lot about your character we've learned there, which I guess isn't a surprise because you weren't nobody. You were the number one ocean swimmer in the world at the time. So I mentioned before that the record, six hours and 55 minutes. And I, I just want to try and put that in perspective for our listeners. So if you're a, someone who does a little bit of swimming, or in the past you've done a little bit of swimming and you can go down to your local pool. Trent swam 40 kilometers across from Dover to Calais in six hours and 55 minutes. And if you do the maths, and I did the maths last night, it took me about an hour because maths is not my thing. That is one minute and 22 seconds per hundred. Had you worked that out before? Had I worked it out? No, but other people have worked it out for me. Yeah. 122. So I challenge anyone, go down to your local pool and swim two laps of an Olympic pool, 100 meters. And you might swim somewhere close to a 122 if you're a decent swimmer. But then try do it again. And then try do it again. Trent Grimsey did it 400 times in a row. 122. That is just remarkable stuff. I swim in a squad. There's we do a lot of short rest cycles on, you know, we might do 10 or 12 or sometimes even 30 hundreds. And the really great swimmers in the squad might do it on 120. You know, there might be some good swimmers who do it on 130. And, and a lot of people who train really hard do their cycles on, on 145, 150. And we might only be doing 10 or 12 of them. You did 400 of them in 17 degree water. It's just remarkable, mate. No, thank you, David. Yeah. Hey, this is probably off the record. Yeah, I thought it was 112. Really? I'm not sure. We might have to double check that. We might have. So we just, Trent's just point out to me that my maths might be wrong. It might actually be 112, which I, makes it. I've been telling people 112, even so I hope it more is. more ridiculous. So if it is 112, so 122, 112, put it this way, I've been swimming in a squad for more than 10 years and I have never come across someone who does their hundreds on 112. 
And when I say we do our hundreds, we might do, as I say, 10 or 12 or 20 of them. You did 400 of them. That, mate, to me is absolutely remarkable. I've seen you in your Speedos. You're a fit looking guy. You're tall, broad shoulders, but you've only got two arms and two legs. And as far as I know, you've probably only got one heart beating inside that chest of yours. How on earth can you outperform not average Joes, but people who who train and, and are fit and try hard, how can you outperform them so gigantically? Well, look, David, I think from a, it was probably a very young age. It was, um, look, I think I might've been 14 and I was, I might've even been younger than, I think I was about 12 years old. I was at state titles. I remember I got real excited because I qualified for state titles, the swimming championships. And I think I ended up getting like dead last in my race. And I remember like walking back to my car with my mum and dad and I was thinking, that's really embarrassing. I never want that to happen again. But look, I knew early on I, I wasn't the most talented swimmer. I pretty much had no talent whatsoever. I don't I, believe that for I the just record. Trained, I just trained hard. It was actually after that state championships where I think I got next to dead last, I, I thought, um, well, what can I do between now and next year? I want to make a final. So um, I think I'd, I'd had a talk to my coach, uh, John Rogers at the time, and um, I said, what can we do to, where can we go from here? I said, look, I know I don't have the, the talent a lot of the guys who race do, but I can train harder than them. So it was pretty standard if you're a distance swimming, you swim 10 times a week. So um, me and my coach decided, okay, everyone's swimming 10 times a week. Let's swim 11 times a week. So I did. And next year, I think I even won a medal. And um, I thought, wow, this is unreal. Just by swimming one extra session over, over a 12-month period, it made a massive difference. I thought, you know what? In swimming 11 times a week, imagine what I'd do if I got in an hour early and, and swam an extra two or three K before my squad started every afternoon. And that's what I started doing. The next year, even I won a medal at our age championships, Australian age championships. So I thought, even though I didn't have the, um, even though I didn't have the speed and the, and the talent, like a lot of other guys my age, I knew I could train harder than them. I knew I was prepared to do stuff they, they weren't prepared to do. I think essentially that's kind of what got me over the line and I just stacked to it. I was just very consistent. And when a lot of other guys my age who, who were better swimmers, they finished high school, they all stopped swimming. I was kind of the last one standing essentially. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure, mate. I'm sure that's the reason that you became the number one swimmer in the world because everyone else stopped. I don't believe that for a second. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. So amongst all of those fantastic achievements, there's a little bit of a tragic story in your career. In that time when you were at your peak, 2012, when you broke the the record across the English Channel in September, of course, that was an Olympic year. And there were the trials for the Olympics and the 10K swim is, is an Olympic event. And you were the number one ranked swimmer in the world and you got sick and couldn't compete at the Olympic trials for Australia. So you weren't in the Australian team and didn't go to the Olympics. Yeah, well, that's it was actually 2011. At the end of 2011, we had our um, – it's a really complicated process to make the um, Olympics for open water swimming. So at the Australian Nationals in 2011, that's when they had them. And I, I raced there. They took the top two to world champs. And if you made the top 10 at world champs, you got a spot at the Olympics. If you didn't make top 10, you go to Portugal six months later and you have another opportunity, but you got to place – highest ranked in Oceania. So it is quite complicated, but it is complicated. At the Australian Nationals end of 2011, yeah, I got third and that placed third. 
So I obviously didn't get a chance to race for a spot. And look, that was really quite frustrating. I remember at the time I was thinking, oh no, I've wasted my whole life swimming. I'm never going to make an Olympics. But it's quite funny. I look back now and I, I think like everything does happen for a reason. Had I gone to that Olympics, like just say I had made the team, I honestly don't think I would have had the world record for the English Journal because had I gone to the Olympics, I wouldn't have done all these different marathons, all these cold water marathons. And sure, I'd, I'd be an Olympian and probably have the rings tattooed on me. But looking now, I'd, I'd definitely take the English Channel over the Olympics, to really? be honest. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but they give out Olympic medals every four years. Yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah. But with the English Channel, it's it's not even guaranteed you get across. Yeah. And they don't give out a world record every four years. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, um, I think Peter had actually had it for seven years. So it's, yeah, looking back, I'm definitely happy with the way my career panned out. And I think everything does happen for a reason and, and missing that team. I was actually thinking about pulling the pin then, but I thought, well, I'd had this English channel booked, so I may as well do it. I think I'd already paid for it already. So I'm like, well, <laughs> may as well give it a crack now. So um, I kind of used that as my own Olympics in 2012. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, so that's kind of, that definitely motivated me, I think, missing that Olympic Games because I, I felt like I couldn't really show everyone, not just in Australia, but the world. Yeah, I, I guess how good I was. And look, to be honest, I'm probably better suited. Like, I think you mentioned earlier, David, about the English Channel being a time trial event. I knew that was my strength. I knew I could swim faster than anyone for longer than anyone. And the English Channel, that suited me to the T. That's essentially what the English Channel is, swimming as fast as you can for pretty much as long as you can. So I knew that style of racing suited me. That was my strength. I had raced Peter quite a few times since I started open water swimming in 2009. I'd raced him probably eight to 10 times in that three years. And, and I knew he, he was also very good at just swimming a fast pace for a long time. But I had this feeling I was faster than him. He was very good with tactics too. Like in all the marathon swimmers that you did, all the World Cup and Grand Prix races, even the World Championships, it's all about drafting and whoever's got the most energy with one kilometer left to swim. It's like cycling very much. But the time trial, it was just whoever could go hard out from the start and hang on to it. And that was one of my strengths. And that was definitely one of Peter's strengths too. But I'd done a few races where I just had this feeling if it was just me and Peter, if we were side by side, 50 meters apart, I just felt like I could have held a faster pace. And that English channel was probably a um, a good gauge. So that's definitely something that was an inkling I had. And I guess the English channel essentially proved it. So the... The Olympics, of course, is a 10, they call it the Olympic marathon swim, but it's 10 kilometers, which doesn't quite qualify as a marathon technically, but it's still a bloody long way to swim. Yeah. Is 10 kilometers actually a bit short for you? Look, I think you're right. I think 10 kilometers is a little bit short for me. I did start off as a pool swimmer. So it's a 1500 swim in the pool. So I actually just missed the Beijing Olympic Games in the 1500. So I came to open water swimming from a pool swimming background. So I had some really good 1500 speed that a lot of the other open water swimmers didn't have but in saying that I was like if I was a racehorse I'd be a stayer yeah, um, yeah. so I didn't have that change of speed that 10k was starting to turn yeah that Olympic open water race has changed so much the last couple of years and it's very much you need to be it's almost a sprinter's race now it's whoever can stay with the pack the longest and it's whoever's got the fastest sprint left in him that last kilometer and I didn't really have that good change of pace. I could hold one pace all day, but um, it was really hard for me to try and go faster than that. So that's why those longer marathons, those Grand Prix, the 30-kilometer races really suited me. It's funny to hear 
you talk about the speed of a 1500 meter swimmer, because of course that's by far the longest race in a pool, but in your world, that's, that's a blink of an eye, isn't it? And that's an interesting part of your story as well. Missing out on the 2008 Olympics uh, to Grant Hackett, of course. And was it Craig Stevens? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how far did you miss out by? Uh, well, it's under a qualifying time in 2008, but they took the top two. So I was, I think it was, uh, I was, I was about 15 seconds behind. So I was third, about 15 seconds behind uh, Craig, but still under a qualifying time. Nice. That's an, a nice achievement, mate. You have, you've achieved so much. The thing that might baffle people is that at the age of 24, the number one ocean swimmer in the world, swimming all of these great events around the world, and I'm sure traveling in limousines and staying in five-star hotels and flying business class, I'm sure that's how it was. You retired. You pulled the pin, hung up the togs. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think towards the end of my career, probably the last 12 months in particular, I was just getting to a point where I was just, it was almost becoming a chore to wake up and go training. It wasn't fun anymore. And I knew that was probably a good time to do it. And I don't know, just John Eels, a football player. I love how he went out on top after that World Cup. He retired and I don't know. I remember watching that World Cup and, and seeing him. I think he announced his retirement that night, wasn't it? I believe so. I can't quite remember, but I think you're right. And um, I don't know, just something about that, just going out on top. And uh, so it was just after I swam the English Channel, I thought, you know what? I'm, what else I've is achieved there? way more than I thought I would in my in my swimming career. So uh, I think now it's a pretty good time to, to pull the pin to, I guess, hang up the togs. That's very cool, mate. That's a, that's a great decision. Now, so pretty much as soon as you, you pulled the pin, you, you went out on top, John Eels style, you went straight into coaching. Was that always going to be the next step for you? Was that a natural progression? Is it, is it because it was all you'd ever known or did you genuinely have this desire to be a coach? That's a very interesting question. I guess I've never really thought about it, to be honest. I like to ask questions that people have never thought yeah. of. That's my, that's my game. I think it was a little bit of a... Um, I'll just do this because I, I didn't, I actually dropped out of school, so I didn't really have anything lined up, but I thought I've got the world record for the English Channel, so it shouldn't be too hard to find something. But um, it turns out I was completely wrong. So I thought, you know, I'll just do coaching short term while I find something I, I think I'll be happy doing. And um, it just turns out I, I never really found what I think I'd be happy doing. So, and uh, look, I, yeah, I love coaching now. It's absolutely great. So definitely glad I got into it. Now, when you started your squad, it was quite a buzz around Brisbane. You and I both live in Brisbane, just so listeners are aware of that. And and the swimming scene is, you know, is pretty intimate. We we all know, you know, different squads. Most most of us know where different coaches are and which pools they're at. When you got your first gig and you opened your your first squad, and I'm sure it was quite popular because people knew who you were. You actually got the boot from that pool. And I was heartbroken for you because I thought that might be the end of it. You'd started to build up this squad and there's only a finite number of pools around Brisbane that are accessible that people are willing to go to at 5.30 in the morning. So I, I, was, I remember feeling very worried for you. What's Trent going to do now? And you did something that I thought would never work. And it actually has turned out to be a masterstroke. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's, and look, I, I do remember when that happened, there was... Yeah, I got this um, ideal pool in the middle of the city, 50-meter pool. I'd, I'd, I guess I built up a massive squad. I think it was about 50 turning up each morning. And, um, yeah, look, some things didn't work out there. There was a new manager came in, and uh, and he didn't like the way I was doing things. So, um, yeah, look, I ended up moving my squad to another pool. Yeah, I thought it'd just be an easy move, but 
obviously uh, lane space early in the morning is, is very hard to get. So ideally, I wanted a, a 5.30, start at 5.30 time slot, but um, all the pools in Brisbane were taken. It's, uh, yeah, it's lane space is, uh, is very hard to get that time in the morning in this inner city pool. So, um, yeah, look, I, I went to the Centenary Swimming Pool, which is in Spring Hill, and I said, look, I've got all these swimmers. I want to bring them over. And they said, look, Trent, the only time slot uh, we can give you is at 4.15, 4.15 to 5.15. A.M. 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 And I said, look, I'll take it. And then uh, I remember telling people and they're like, Trent, that's not going to work. It's too early. <laughs> I remember thinking that. And um, look, I, I think there was even a time there where I was thinking, oh, it's not going to work. I'm stupid for even doing it. But look, it's, I've been doing it for about three years now, and I'm getting 30 each morning to that 4.15 to 5.15 uh, swim squad, and it's every year it's building. And it turns out, that, I mean, it, it, it's never been an option before. Like you said, every squad, every pool in Brisbane has a 5.30 squad. You can go and have a swim somewhere, and that's why you couldn't get in in a pool at 5.30. I thought 4.15 was going to be the death knell of your coaching career, but it's actually opened up a whole new range of possibilities because there are people who have kids at home who can go and do their training and get home before their kids have even woken up. And that's what you're servicing, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's tradies, there's, um, yeah, like there's, there's swimmers that come and they get their training done while the kids are still asleep. They get home, the kids are still asleep. Yeah, look, a lot of people that they train and they go straight into work and um, so they can finish early. But it's actually, it's just such a good mix of people. I absolutely love it. Like I even, I set my alarm, I have it set for 3.30 every morning and yeah I just can't wait to get there and see everyone it's it really is a great atmosphere like he, the pool opens at four you, you think you'd walk in everyone's still be half asleep but everyone's talking to everyone and it's actually a really good environment it's a very unique story mate we've never had anything like it before I wonder if it even exists in too many places around the world so I'm so glad it's working out for you You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. So you've got this 4.15 session up and running, and it's pretty much a normal squad, but then all of a sudden you, because of who you are and and what you've achieved, you, you start to inspire people to want to swim across the English Channel. So now you've got this growing number of of athletes who don't just want to go and do those two and three and five K ocean swims that we can all do down the coast each weekend. You've got people who want you to prepare them to swim across the English Channel. So that extra early swim session that you've got starting at 4.15 is actually having that benefit because those athletes have got to swim for longer in the morning. So if they're starting at 4.15, they can still get that long swim in, training for something like the English Channel and still get to work. Yeah, that's right. And um, like you said, it's Look, there's, uh, there's so many people, not just in Brisbane, but all over the world now. So currently I'm training about 20 swimmers over the next two years to swim a solo of the English Channel. There's uh, there's quite a few relays in there as well. So, it uh, look, it is very exciting. But yeah, look, all the Brisbane-based English Channel swimmers, they love those early morning squads because they get their, their one-hour swim squad in of their, where they get times and it's kind of their quality. Then they stay back for an extra hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours. Depends what phase of the training they're in and yeah, and swim on, do their kind of longer aerobic stuff. So it does work out very well. So preparing for the English Channel and it's still only seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and most English Channel swimmers in Brisbane have uh, have done their training. They're probably jumping back in bed. It's unbelievable. It's, it's fantastic, man. It's, it's working so well for you. So you, of course, will continue to run your squad. You and your brother, Cody, who we probably should have talked a little bit more about, we might talk about later. 
you have every second week you you run an open water session down there. It's at Redcliffe, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Redcliffe Suns Beach. So you've you've got a little swimming empire going on, but this whole preparing people for the English Channel, where not only are you putting them through the program, you're organising everything at the other end as well. The the pilot, someone to help them across, the crew that will be on the boat with them. That's becoming quite a big part of your business now. Yeah, that that's correct. It's I think it probably started off. I had a few people come up and say, "Oh, I'd like to swim in the English Channel. I don't know where to. I don't know really where to start. Like, can you help me out? Guide me in the right direction." And um, yeah, it just seemed to be. David, every couple of weeks, I'd have more people coming in and talking to me about it. And I'm like, wow, this is, um, it's got a lot of potential here. So I guess that's kind of how it started. And it's just grown from there. But like you said, it's, um, I have uh, my business with my brother, Grimsey's Adult Swim Fit. So we kind of stopped swimming at the same time, me and my brother. He was, um, he was a very good swimmer in his own right. We are a very good marathon swimmer. We actually traveled a lot together and did, did our big marathons together. And, um, so we were brothers, we were training partners, travel partners. It was, um, yeah, it was it was pretty special. And to be able to share that with my brother too, it was great. Poor old Cody, one of the best ocean swimmers in the world, but not even the best swimmer in his family. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when, before you and I knew each other well, I certainly knew who you were because of what you'd achieved. Whenever I go down and do those those ocean events, and for that, you know, for people who don't understand the way that these events work, Chumps like me will swim in their age group. So I, oh, you know, used to swim in the 30 to, you know, what was it? 30 to f- 34 to 39 years age group. I'm now in the 40 to 44 year age group. And often we would either have not started yet or we'd be finished by the time you guys, the big boys, the open guys were finishing your race. And I have lost count of the number of events I was at where the big boys would be coming in and the commentators on the beach are going wild because you can see this pack of swimmers coming in and it would be Grimsy 1, Grimsy 2, Grimsy 3. It was just amazing to see all three of you competing at such a high level. Usually it was you and Cody sprinting up the beach together and if my memory serves me correctly, eight out of ten times it would be you just pipping him at the line Yeah, and about, you know, a whole three seconds after you would be little brother Ridge. Yeah, that's right. And you know what? It's funny now, like looking back on my swimming career, that's that there are race there are brothers in those little local ocean swims. That's yeah, that's definitely high up there. That's right up there with the English Channel in, in things I'll um things I'll never forget. So it was pretty special racing my brothers in those races. And you know, it's I always got the commentators of those races always said, Oh, what's it like racing your brothers? Uh, this is a post race interview and like they wanted me to say, oh, look, I'm going to smash my brother. Like they wanted us to talk it up. But honestly, it was, I imagine it'd be like Kate and Bronte Campbell racing each other in the pool. Like yeah. I love racing my brothers and I love that when they, when Cody and Ridge did beat me and they did get me a couple of times. And I used to absolutely love that because I felt like I never let them win, but I wanted to make it as hard as possible for them to beat me. Yeah. So I'd try and, um, try and break away early on in the swim and, Look, it was just awesome racing them, and, and I absolutely love seeing them do so well. And look, if I could never win a race, I'd want them to win it. I'm guessing that it's certainly true that you wouldn't have been the swimmer you were if it wasn't for your brothers. Oh, that's it. Yeah, look, obviously when we were young, parents used to wake us up and drive us to the pool. So look, we, we all used to train together. We'd get home, we'd have breakfast together, we'd uh, talk about how hard the session was. And yeah, look, obviously marathon swimming, it's, it's definitely not a solo sport. You definitely have a big team, a, a group of people around you. And I think that's like a lot of the English Channel Swimmers I'm coaching now. It's something I'm trying to let them know. It's You're not doing it by yourself. There's a big team around you. There's your family. There's 
There's your training partners, there's your, there's your coach, there's your massage therapist, your nutritionist, your crew. But yeah, it's it's definitely not a solo sport. It's definitely a team. And uh, look, I had, a, I had a pretty special team around me when I was swimming. I remember being on the beach and watching you guys come in first, second and third time after time. And your parents were always there. And and I, I remember going up to you and because and you the other thing about it was that you were always so approachable. You know, just after you, you broke the English Channel World Record, you and I didn't know each other. And I just, as I walked past you once, I said, you know, congratulations, great swim. And you stopped and chatted to me and you wanted, you were more interested in the race that I'd just swum. And I, you know, that was amazing to me because I'd probably just come like seventh in the 34 to, to 39 year age group. So for you to be more interested in me was, was just incredible. And I remember going to your dad once and saying, you must be so proud of your boys and the, what they achieve, yet how humble they are. Yeah, look, definitely, definitely. And uh, your dad loved going to all those races and, and, and watching, uh, I guess, watching his boys uh, do really well. But yeah, look, it it was pretty special. And uh, look, my parents played such a big part in, in my swimming career. Like, look, I lived at home to 24 years old. So while I was still swimming, I still lived at home. So whenever I come home from training, mum would have a meal on the table for me. It's definitely made it pretty easy. And look, like I know a lot of my friends that swam, they didn't have that. And yeah, I'm just incredibly grateful and very lucky to have, again, it's just that team around you that'll do anything for you, I guess. And just to help people understand the, the extent of training that you guys put yourself through, there, there was a period where I was preparing myself for a, a long distance event and my squad had shut down over Christmas. So I came and, and swam with your squad for a few weeks. And when I say swim with your squad, I was about eight lanes away from you guys. There was the Grimsy lane and then there was everyone else. And, and I remember turning up on Christmas Eve one day, Christmas Eve one year to do a hundred hundreds, which is a big session for us because we, we'd had a few days off afterwards. So we were going to have a massive session at five o'clock in the morning we were starting and we got there and you guys were already into it. And I, I asked your coach, I said, what are those guys doing? And he said, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think he said something like they're doing 65 250s. Could that possibly be right? Look, it's once a month, every Saturday morning, we, we do a massive set like that. Like it was uh, anywhere from 12 to I think about 18 kilometers. So look, that probably does sound right. I, um, yeah, I actually have kept a logbook from when I was 10 years old to when I was, to the day I stopped swimming, I've never missed one session. So at home, I just got piles upon piles of notebooks with every single session I did. So, uh, yeah, look, I'd, yeah, I probably would have done that. But and to me, it's just ridiculous. A crazy thing. Now, look, the good news for everyone is that, I mean, obviously there's very limited spots. Not everyone can come and swim in your squad, but you know, you are a fantastic coach. You are as good a coach as you were a swimmer from everything that I understand. And the best news for people, not just in Brisbane, but around Australia is that Everything you learned about swimming across the English Channel, everything you learned about preparing yourself for it and the logistics behind doing it, you're now willing to share with people. And and that's part of what you do and the services that you provide. So tell us about that. Is it, is it a case of if, if you've got this dream and you think that maybe the English Channel is something that you want to do, you can get them there? Yeah, look, absolutely. And the English Channel, it's one of those things, like I, I tell all my swimmers, you just got to prepare for the worst. That way you can't be disappointed. Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's one of those things, like if you're when you're standing on the beach in Dover, you're about to dive into that English Channel. You want to know you've done everything possible. You want to know you're in the best physical condition of your life. And um, and look, you've done everything. You've done everything right. Like there's so many variables with the English Channel. All you can do is 
there's some things you can control, some things you can't control. So you want those things that you can control to make sure they're perfect. And look, everything else just really take care of itself. If you've got a good team around you and, uh, and you've done everything right, you'll be fine. And the other thing that you and I have discussed, which I think is just such a terrific idea, the idea of, of what it would be like to bond with a group of friends or a group of colleagues at work by preparing together, going across to the UK and swimming the English Channel as a relay. Because obviously people like you do it solo. You know, People who are trying to break world records have to do it solo, but it's very much an option to do it as a relay. And a normal relay is six people where you swim for an hour at a time and you get a bit of rest. And you've sent across some relay teams in the past and just watched the kind of camaraderie that, that exists within that group as they prepare together, look forward to the event together, train, travel, do everything logistically over there in the UK and then get to the other side and stand over in Calais together. You, you've seen the effect that that has on a group. Oh, look, it, it is. It's very special. And I absolutely love relays because when you assume the English Channel is a solo, it's you don't really get to experience it from the boat. And I absolutely love relays because you get to be on a boat. You get to, I guess, see it from the crewers' perspective. You get to cheer and motivate those other swimmers in the water. Then when they come out on the boat, everyone's got their towel, they wrap around them. And look, it is pretty special. It's, yeah, I reckon relays are probably more enjoyable than solos. And I don't know, like the first time I, I took a team across and we swam the English Channel, it was pretty special that being able to share that feeling with other swimmers as well. It was pretty special. I reckon I was just as proud of, of finishing with my team as I was a couple of years earlier when I'd done my solo. It's definitely a weird feeling, but um, yeah, very much the same. To a lot of people listening, when they hear us say, maybe you should swim across the English Channel, you might as well be telling them to fly to the moon. Some people would think, oh, we can never swim across the English Channel. But not everyone who you train to, to get across there is, is already a squad swimmer who does lots of competition, who just wants to up it. You've, you've sent people across the channel who came from a non-swimming background. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. They, it's just all walks of life, you know. Yeah, I've got a couple of, of ladies this year. They've, got, they've all got kids not just one, like they've got one lady's got four kids, another lady's got three kids. It's just all walks of life. Like I got some, some have retired. They're just looking for something else to do. Some have just left the military. They're looking for a, a new goal. But yeah, it's, it's just like, I love just getting to know the different people and find out why they want to swim in the English Channel. Everyone's got their own reasons and it's, yeah, it is pretty special. And I absolutely love training people for the English Channel. I love passing on what I knew and I think I was, when I swam my English channel, I think I was very naive. I didn't really know, but I think that naivety did play in my favor. Obviously, when you swim the channel, you can potentially swim in the dark. And I didn't realize that when I, I think I'd actually swam my English channel. The next day I was, where I was staying, I talked to another guy who just happened to be staying there who was swimming the English channel. And he was telling me how he was swimming in the dark. And I'm like, hang on, you swam the English channel in the dark. Because it's all about the tide, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's all about the tide. So just go whenever you get the best tidal assistance. It could be one o'clock in the morning. It could be seven o'clock. Like I left at seven o'clock in the morning. It's very fortunate. But yeah, I didn't even realize it could swim in the dark. But yeah, just things like that. So um, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. But I think that naivety definitely helped me. I think if I know what I know now about the English channel, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't have thought I could break the record. But obviously, I was a lot younger back then. I didn't, I didn't really know everything there was to know, and I think that played in my favour. I was um, untouchable, unbreakable, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's great now to be able to pass on what I know and, and what I did. And another thing I did leading up to when I swam the English Channel, 
I was very skinny in 2009. I was very skinny. I was 75 kilos. And I remember the first time I swam in really cold water. There was a race over in South Africa. It was called the, uh, it was a Robben Island swim. So you swim from Robben Island to the mainland. Where Nelson Mandela was in, in prison. prison for like 20 years. Yeah. So you swim from there to the mainland. It's 7.5 kilometers and it's an 11 degree water. I was 75 kilos when I did that race. I actually collapsed once across the finish line and, and my body temperature was 29, I think 29.4. And, um, yeah, I was in a good way after that swim. And I remember thinking, okay, if I want to swim in cold water, because a lot of the big marathon swims in the world, all the prestigious ones are in cold water. So you need to be able to swim in cold water. So I just talked to as many people as I could, people who had swam the English Channel. And I wanted to find out what they thought they did well in their preparation and in their swim and, and what they thought they could do differently. I wanted to learn. I knew if I could learn from their mistakes, I wouldn't need to make any mistakes myself. And I think that's something I did really well. I must have talked to about 50 people uh, 12 months out from when I swam my channel who had swam the channel. And yeah, I just, yeah, I knew if I could take something from each swimmer that would limit the amount of mistakes I made and, and potentially make me swim faster. And that you could obviously now hand on to the people that you're mentoring across Absolutely. there. So you put on a fair bit of weight for that, about 10 kilos, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that, that is right. Yeah. So I ended up putting on 10 kilos. How did you put on 10 kilos having swum, because you were swimming a marathon every week before that. How did you put on 10 kilos? Yeah. Look, it was, it was very, very hard to put on the weight. So I was 75 kilos, went to 85 kilos. So I tried to do it the right way. I saw these sports dietitians and nutritionists and whatnot. So it wasn't just ice cream. Well, I tried to do that. Yeah, I stuck to the eating plans and, you know, I was swimming 100, well, 90 to 100 kilometers a week. So I was, and when I swim that distance, I always lose weight. So I couldn't even maintain my weight. I was still losing weight. So it was actually a guy in Melbourne, John Van Weiss. So he swam the channel quite a few times and he probably gave me the best advice. He said, Trent, he said, try and put on weight. He said, he looked at me, he said, mate, you'll need to put on at least 10 kilos. He said, try and do it the right way. He said, if you can't, he said, just go to McDonald's and, uh, really? and mate, that, that should do the trick. Yeah. So I went to McDonald's every day for a month, right? like a, <laughs> a Big Mac and thick, thick shake chocolate milk you put on weight pretty quickly. Really? And uh, I put that 10 kilos on in about a month. Right. Yeah. And how once quick- you got it on, it's easy to maintain, but it's just getting it on. And was it easy to lose once you wanted to lose it? Oh, I've still got it now. <laughs> you 85 now, are you? Yeah. yeah. Are you really? Yeah. So you've, you've never lost that English Channel weight? No, no, I, I guess never you lost reti- it. You retired, yeah, well, pretty I retired much straight after. Pretty much straight after, yeah. But in saying that, with with that extra weight I put on, it's it's really weird. When I put on the extra weight, I actually found I was recovering a lot better after a lot of my long, my big weeks of training. I'd recover a lot better by having that extra weight on. I wasn't getting sick half as often, and I just felt just my times in training improved as well. So it's really I would have thought it'd have the reverse yeah. effects, but actually. Yeah, if I knew what I knew now, I would have put that weight on years ago. Bit of flotation, eh? Yeah. All right, now we're going to wrap up the swimming talk now, Trent, because we're going to finish this very soon. I could talk to you forever about this, but one last point. You're actually going to make a little bit of a comeback early next year. You're going to go and have a crack at the Rottnest Swim, which is Australia's biggest swim, Australia's longest distance swim. And of course, you're not just going to swim it like most people would. You you are going to win it. So watch out whoever won it last year. Trent Grimsey's coming. What's the likelihood of you having a crack at that? Yeah, I guess a Rottnest Channel Swim, for a lot of my English channels, well, a lot of Australian English Channel Swimmers, it's a really good stepping stone. It's, it's 20 kilometers. It's in about 21 degree water. So it is a good stepping stone for the English Channel. And yeah, look, I've just got so many athletes who will be doing it next year. So I thought, you know, I may as well go over and do it with them. And you really were just going to try and keep it quiet. 
Yeah, I was going to. Yeah, I guess cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I've uh, I've got that scoop. Sorry, mate. I didn't realise that was a secret. All right, now we've we've finished the talk. That's um, I always ask my guests the same four questions to finish off. These are non-swimming questions. This is to find out a little bit more about the inherent Trent Grimsey. Question number one, Trent, tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to: a big party with lots of people you know, or an intimate dinner with your closest friends. Definitely intimate dinner with closest friends. All right. Now, are you are you more likely to be caught daydreaming or get bogged down in the detail? Oh, I'm a daydreamer. Are you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right. Next one. What about making decisions? Do you make decisions based on emotion or through a process of rational thought? Uh, emotion. Do you? Interesting. Okay. And very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you book the hotels in advance, plan the route? and know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Well, that's a tough one. I'd, I kind of like doing both sometimes. You've got to pick one, mate. Look, I, pre, I pre-plan. I Yeah, I pre-book everything. You're a planner. Trent Grimsey, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed having you on the show. There are, if any, very few athletes I admire more than you. So thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for having me on the show. And that was Trent Grimsey. What a remarkable story. I loved hearing about the drama, the triumph, and the pure physical suffering that he went through to become the fastest person to ever swim across the English Channel. I loved hearing about his career, the highs and the lows, and the things that inspired him along the way. But above all, it's Trent's pure humility that impresses me the most. In the intro to this episode, I mentioned the comparison between climbing Everest and swimming the channel. As it turns out, of course, it's a hotly debated question, and I'll post a link to a terrific article on that topic on the podcast page for this episode. And it's there where, as always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And a reminder, you can find us on all the usual social media haunts. Like, comment, share, all that kind of stuff. But especially, I'd love it if you could jump on iTunes, subscribe, and rate the show. It helps us get more listeners and, in turn, more great guests. I'll be back next week for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.